Here we are again, looking into the rear pew mirror, reflecting on how things can look different from the back row of the sanctuary. I'm Doug Brooke, and once again, the last row of the sanctuary is briefly moving front and center. Once in a while, a synagogue pays up its insurance coverage for lightning strikes and has me deliver the sermon. Well, faster than you can say lightning strikes twice, it happened a third time this year. So, as before, this will still be me, though this episode might be more about finding bits of nonsense amid real things than the usual finding real things amid my nonsense. And I'll give you the usual disclaimer. Being the third one this year, this now qualifies as usual. If just because I use the word sermon, you're expecting this to be preaching, me telling you what to believe or telling you what I believe, believe me, it's not. I don't even tell myself what to believe, so I'm sure not going to do it to anyone else. And as for whether sermon equals boring, I didn't fall asleep more than twice while I originally delivered this. This was for Shabbat morning, November 26th, 2022. It's not Thanksgiving weekend anymore, but I'll still talk in the present tense as if it were, so you can feel like you're actually there, ready to take a nap as soon as the sermon starts. So. Imagine yourself in your Wayback Machine, getting over the food coma from your first couple of Thanksgiving meals. You just eagerly listened to the Torah reading. Hey, I said imagine. Close your eyes, unless you're listening to this while driving, walking, or jogging. And here's what I said. Shabbat Shalom and Chag Sameach. Yes, Chag Sameach, because of course it's Shabbat Yom Turkey. In more traditional Hebrew, turkey is Tarnagal Hodu. So, while we didn't do it today, there once was a special Hallel for the Shabbat of Thanksgiving weekend where we'd recite Tarnagal Hodu Lahashem Kitov, literally, Turkey for God, because it's good. This is the third drash I'm delivering this year. The first was on Rosh Hashanah, January 1st. The second was during Passover, but you'd need to have listened really hard because it was back east. By the way, I delivered this in Silicon Valley. The Talmud teaches that comedy works in threes. The Talmud also teaches that bad things come in threes. So we'll see in the next few moments which way this one goes. Or perhaps this is akin to the Torah having said, I give to you a blessing and a curse, if this ends up being both. But I should point out that the patriarchs also came in threes, as today's Torah reading touched on. The Parsha's name, Toldot, means generations, and it starts with over-articulating the connection between Abraham and Isaac. It then goes on to recount more of Isaac's story and the first part of Jacob's. So, with the long history of Jewish comedians, does this mean that the patriarchs were the origin of comedy coming in threes? Or... Were the patriarchs imperfect people, which would better align with bad things coming in threes? Or both? Let's take one story arc from this week's Parsha as an example. No, not the story of Noah's Ark, or Joan of Ark, or even Joan Van Ark. Uh, no relation, by the way. Conveniently, this story arc has three parts. First, near the beginning of the Parsha, Rebecca is pregnant with twins. The big G says to her, she's carrying two nations. One kingdom will become mightier than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. The second part, 
As the boys grew up, Esau came back exhausted from hunting one day and asked Jacob for what he was cooking before he collapsed. Jacob barters for Esau to sell him his birthright in exchange. Esau does so, and after he moved to the couch to sleep off being stuffed with turkey and stuffing, the Torah says, and Esau despised the birthright. Third part, eventually, when Isaac's old, he tells Esau to go hunting for some takeout, and after lunch, he'll bless Esau as one does for the firstborn. Rebecca overhears this and famously sets up Jacob to receive the blessing instead. Now, break away for a moment from our Sunday school-infused perceptions of the story. From an early age, like in most stories, we're given an understanding of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And we know how the story of the Torah goes, so we see individual events in ways that fit into that larger narrative. Not saying that's wrong. But is there useful nuance that is easily missed because of this? Of course there is. There always is. The Talmud is an entire bookcase of elaborations about easily missed nuance. Back in part one, the Big G tells Rebecca that Esau will serve Isaac. In part three, Rebecca works behind the scenes to help ensure that it comes true. Is Rebecca doing it because the Big G told her to in part one? If so, is Esau's beef not really with Jacob, but with the Big G instead, since he first brought it up? Or is Rebecca not thinking about what God told her while she was pregnant, and God was simply foretelling what she would herself manipulate into happening? One could probably write a thesis supporting either direction. Many people probably have. And in their ways, neither would be wrong. And both notions could mutually coexist, even though they sound contradictory. If only both nations could mutually coexist, even though they often sound contradictory. Or maybe it was neither of these. When Jacob trades soup for birthright, the Torah says nothing leading up to it. This time, there's no mention of Rebecca working behind the scenes, or that Jacob was aware, then or ever, of what God told Rebecca while he and Esau were still simmering in the oven. Did Rebecca game this event too, and for some reason the Torah just doesn't mention it? If so, why didn't it mention it? Or was it Jacob's own spontaneous idea? And if so, was the big G predicting that at the beginning? Obviously, these events as they're written can be interpreted in several ways. This story could be portrayed anywhere from like an episode of Three's Company, you know, the one where there's a misunderstanding. to a 1980s TV movie of the week filled with family intrigue and deception and perhaps Joan Van Ark. Or various points in between. What are the key variables that make the difference in these various possible portrayals? Motivation and communication. What do we believe the motivations of the people were? What was and wasn't communicated and how? What's more, the answers to these questions are driven by the motives of the people doing the interpreting. What do they want to believe the biblical characters' motivations were? What do they want to use the biblical story to communicate? What's the narrative they somehow want this to fit? A quick example. 
Ponder those early phrases that God says to Rebecca while she's pregnant. One kingdom will become mightier than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. It sounds like, because the elder will serve the younger, that the younger's kingdom will obviously be the mightier. But these are separate phrases. Yes, they're connected by an and, but remember that Torah trope isn't just a pretty melody to lull you into your pre-sermon nap. It's grammatical. The trope, via its melody, provides the structure of the words and phrases in lieu of punctuation because punctuation as we know it simply didn't exist when the Torah was written. As I tell my students, trope helps us understand what the Torah is really saying so we don't have misconceptions like the difference between time to eat, comma, grandma, and time to eat, grandma. And no, I haven't been fired due to complaints from grandparents. Yet. In this text, the trope indicates that these are separate phrases, that there's a break before the and, rather than them being one long thought. As Victor Borga would say, it's one kingdom will become mightier than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. Not, one kingdom will become mightier than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. That doesn't mean they're not related. It just doesn't confirm that they are. Kind of like how in football, video replay can confirm the ruling on the field, overturn the ruling, or not be conclusive enough either way, so they let the ruling stand. So, it's possible that the elder will serve the younger, and also that the elder's kingdom could become mightier than the younger's kingdom. We just assume that if one's serving the other, the mightier kingdom is the one that's being served. Might makes right and all that. But also consider that mightier and elder are in the first part of each of those phrases. So there's parallelism between those two in the sentence structure, which one can easily say means they're related. And not for nothing, 20 years after Isaac's blessing, when Jacob comes home, he's greeted by Esau, leading what seems like a large army that overshadows Jacob and his brood. And if you apply it to today, certainly the descendants of Esau are enormous and populous in land at the very least, relative to the descendants of Jacob. And it's worth pointing out that neither serves the other, nor should they. So there are numerous ways that the same events originating from the same words can be interpreted. And interestingly, they can coexist, even if it seems like they contradict. Though I should disclaim it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes conflicting narratives simply can't coexist. For example, a certain incident occurred on January 6th of last year, 2021, and there are a variety of ways that the same specifics have been contextualized in wildly different ways. A difference here is motivation. Some of those contexts are motivated by fitting a particular narrative, no matter how badly it fits. It ends up treated as more important that it fit the narrative well enough rather than fitting the facts very well, if at all. Perhaps some are knowingly covering up to save face. But many, if not most, interpret things as they do not because they believe in doing evil. They don't wake up each day diabolically twirling their curly Q mustache, in part because most people don't have curly Q mustaches these days. They interpret things as they do because they believe they're doing what they understand 
to be right. In other words, if you just pictured one side of this as being deceitful about this event, there are people who are equally certain in the same way about the other side. By the way, if I could eliminate the word side from everyday vocabulary, I would. It gets so overused and casts everything as being one versus the other, often in situations that aren't actually that binary and shouldn't be. It forces people away from the reality in between extremes. We're both extremists. Reality is probably somewhere in between. So, yes, this isn't just about sociopolitical events, but also about personal, everyday life. Not to tell tales, but I have a few exes from over the centuries who portrayed some things very differently than I did. I'd say they did it to save face, since it was mostly not to my face, and I'd say that with certainty. Because, you know, I am certain. But probably so would they, even though they shouldn't be certain. So who would people believe? And what disservice is done because of that choice? What disservice to perceptions of the people involved? And how it bleeds into interactions with those people or opportunities for them. It can get impactful. One could take such a circumstance and try to figure who's saving face and who's telling the truth, but often, no matter how well intended, reality is somewhere in between. And people often don't take the time. And who's to say they'll get to the absolute truth if they do? But there are some other events in this Parsha to see what directions they might go in, in terms of carrying multiple, parallel, seemingly contradictory meaning. For example, there are a couple of journeys in this Parsha. First, between the Brothers' Birthright Brunch and the Firstborn Blessing Buffet, a famine drove Isaac to the land of the Philistines. Isaac and the family stayed in that general area for quite a while. The Philistines had refilled the water wells that Abraham had previously dug there. Isaac reopened the wells and then a few new ones because the local shepherds fought with him over the wells and, well, they just couldn't leave wells enough alone. Jacob later also took a journey, yet his journey wasn't motivated by famine, but by family, which are spelled surprisingly similarly, though they don't generally mean the same thing. After Esau learned that Jacob got the blessing for the firstborn, Esau was ready to kill him. Rebekah tells Jacob he has to flee. And she justifies the trip to Isaac by saying that he needs to send Jacob on a matchmaking trip to Rebekah's brother, Lavan, Which is where this week's Torah portion ends. Confused? You won't be after next week's episode of Torah. There's another timely tale of a journey that's not in the Torah. An origin of the Thanksgiving celebration is the Pilgrim's Landing in 1620, nearly 300 years before the Wright brothers achieved the first successful takeoff. 
But nobody talks about that Thanksgiving miracle. But the pilgrims are full of surprises. Conventional wisdom is that the pilgrims were fleeing for a new, faraway land to get away from the shadow of religious oppression because the groundhog saw its shadow and they couldn't handle another six weeks of it. The pilgrims fleeing for that reason is similar to how Jacob took on a journey to a faraway land to get away from the shadow of fraternal oppression. Interestingly, though, there are those who point out that the pilgrims really didn't need to cross the pond to gain religious freedom. Apparently, they'd actually fled England 12 years earlier in 1608 and settled in Dutch territory where they suffered no religious oppression at all. If anything, it seems more likely they took to sea in 1620 to find new opportunity in the quote-unquote new world because of economic hardship. If we can have multiple wildly different interpretations of a specific event, like we were talking about from the Torah portion, imagine how much more afield people can go when two events are conflated into one, like with the pilgrims. If it was deemed okay to conflate the pilgrims fleeing in 1608 with their arrival here in 1620, ignoring the 12 years in between, what else is it conventionally acceptable to gloss over? And what harms and benefits result from doing so? Now, it's true that comedy works in threes, and while this wasn't all a setup for me to make a reference to Yom Turkey by saying, who does a turkey thank when it's called up for an aliyah? Gabai, gabai, gabai. I'll delve into a third and final extrapolation. As nearly a couple of you might recall, in my copious spare time, I've been slowly translating the works of Moshe Chafetz, a rabbi from late 1600s Venice who in several ways is not what you'd expect. His 311th yard site was on Thanksgiving Day this week, which makes it especially interesting to cite this small bit of his Torah commentary on today's Parsha from his commentary published the year before he died. When the elderly Isaac asks Esau to go get some cold cuts before he gives him the blessing for the firstborn, he leads into it saying, Hinena zakanti lo yadati yomoti. Behold now, I have grown old. I don't know the day of my death. Rav Hefetz writes that the young man doesn't think that death comes, but when he grows old, then he'll truly see it drawing near. So Isaac said here now that, quote, I have grown old, but with that he said, I don't know, and he didn't say, I was thinking it is the day of my death. But Rav Hefetz also immediately offers another opinion. The young man will foresee mortality in years, and the old man foresees it in days. Therefore Isaac, because he was old, didn't know the day of his death, which was imminent in days and not years. Fortunately, often today, we sometimes might see it in days, but it ends up being years, which is always a good thing. But in the span of two sentences in his commentary, Rav Hefetz offers two different takes on the same verse. In one, he says that young people don't think that death is coming. You know, the thing about how many young people think they'll live forever, even if they think they, on some level, know better. And in the other verse, he says that young people foresee mortality in years. That sounds somewhat contradictory. Either they don't think that death is coming, or they do foresee mortality. They can't not see death is coming, but also see it coming in years. But the points he makes with each complement each other. 
as different ways that checkout time is perceived relative to age. And each offers unique applications. If one doesn't suit you or apply for you in the moment, maybe the other does. In this instance, neither one seems harmful. And that's something the Torah does. It gives us the opportunity to apply the same things in different ways. It's just up to us, all of humanity, to use it responsibly. The problems tend to arise from different interpretations of what responsibly means. One other bit. I said that Thanksgiving this year in 2022 was Rav Chaifetz's 311th yard site. That's both true and misleading. He died on the 30th of Cheshvan. In most years, many note his yard site on the 29th of Cheshvan. Some note it on the 1st of Kislev. Why? Because Cheshvan doesn't usually have a 30th day. Hold on to your strimals. Everyone knows about February 29th. Some also know that the Hebrew calendar has its own leap years. About seven out of every 19 years, we add an entire month, not just a mere day. This is in part because Hebrew months have 29 or 30 days rather than 30 or 31. The gap requiring a leap adds up faster. With the leap month added, we have two months of Adar. By the way, if you want your mind really blown, which Adar is the one that's added? Adar 1 or Adar 2? Adar 1 is the extra month. Why? Purim stays within a few weeks of Passover, so it falls in Adar 2. Thus, the Adar without Purim, Adar 1, is the additional one. So then, what's this 30th of Cheshvan thing? Well, Rosh Hashanah can't begin on a Wednesday or a Friday. Why? Because Yom Kippur 10 days later can't be on a Friday or a Sunday. Why? Because if Yom Kippur is on a Friday, you don't have time right before Shabbat to prepare for it. Similarly, if Yom Kippur is on Sunday, you don't have time right before it to prepare for it because it'd be Shabbat. So every few years, we have to add a 30th of Cheshvan to keep the days of the week aligned properly. This means that technically there have been only about a hundred of his actual Yartzeit days since he died. But that doesn't mean he was still around a hundred years ago, though there's some fun trivia where a 19th century republisher of his Torah commentary mistakenly believed that Rav Chaifetz had lived to be over a hundred years old. It's a funny story, but you can ask me after class. Well, okay, I'll tell you. Rav Chaifetz's Torah commentary was first published in 1710 in Venice, the year before he died. In 1860, an unrelated publisher decided that Rav Chaifetz's commentary was too important and needed to gain more awareness, so he decided to publish a new second edition. He also added his own commentary to the end, but, you know, whatever. Now, the 1710 edition contained a portrait of Rav Chaifetz, the first Hebrew language text of this kind to contain an author's portrait. I told you he wasn't what you'd expect of his time. The 1860 publisher doctored the portrait drawing for this second edition. He made Rav Chaifetz's hair gray and drew on a kippah to the top of his head to the illustration that originally wasn't having a kippah on his head. Why? He couldn't fathom a rabbi without a kippah. And 
The portrait's caption originally said, Ben Mea Shana Anochi Hayom. Literally, that means I'm 100 years old today. So, 1860 publisher guy thought the portrait should look like a 100-year-old rabbi. He even wrote an apology in his edition explaining the changes he had to make to the portrait, saying he didn't know how the original publisher could make such a mistake. But the joke's on him. In the original caption, the word mea is marked as gematria. Gematria is the assignment of numeric values to Hebrew letters. The three letters in the word mea, which literally means 100, mem aleph he, add up in gematria to 46. That's how old Rav Chaifetz was in 1710 when the book was first published. So really, the caption said, I am 46 years old today, if you notice the gematria markings. He was having a little fun with wordplay, and the 1860 publisher didn't pick up on it. Yes, it sounds like I'm making a joke, but I'm not. Rav Hefetz did a lot of wordplay like this. There's several other examples. And in a way, a lot of Torah commentary is playing with words to find additional meanings. Like I've been saying this whole time. But anyway, what's the point in raising the Rosh Hashanah postponement rules now when we only recently traded in finishing the dishes, both the cleaning of dishes and eating of leftovers, from the High Holy Days for Thanksgiving leftovers and new dirty dish piles? Well, Secular Rosh Hashanah is just five weeks away, but the main point is that even something as simple as a calendar entry can lead to multiple seemingly contradictory interpretations which can either peacefully coexist or be used as bludgeons in the eternal struggle humanity seems to pull itself back into year after year until the Mashiach comes or the Mets win another World Series, whichever comes first. So, especially on this holiday weekend... Drosh responsibly. And here's a parting gift for you. In some years, the Rosh Hashanah postponement rules abstain from a 30th of Cheshvan and also remove the 30th of Kislev. This means that in those years, Hanukkah, which begins its eight-day enlightenment on the 25th of Kislev, ends on the 3rd of Tevet instead of the 2nd of Tevet. That should be interpreted to mean one extra day of presence, right? Shabbat Shalom, Chag Sameach, and because today is the Iron Bowl, Roll Tide. Well, that's it. And I hope you're like me and not a few congregants who approached me afterward and said, I liked it, except for the Roll Tide, because we won the Iron Bowl. I'll just reinforce the Roll Tidiness of that ending. And I also hope that you know how much I thank you for listening in. Whether or not it's your first time, hopefully it's not your last. Rear Pew Mirror is my longtime humor column, though this episode was based on my November 26th, 2022 sermon, Devar Torah, Human Lightning Rod, call it what you will, but I titled it Drosh Responsibly. Please follow Rear Pew Mirror on your podcast platform of choice and tell your friends about it. Give it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that takes reviews and leave a comment as long as it won't scare anyone off. Share this episode with your friends, family, Shabbos guests, and also with people you get along with. Share it with total strangers, partial strangers, and anyone who shares our love of Frank Sinatra's legendary Hanukkah romantic candlelighting classic, Strangers in the Night. Strangers in the Night 
You can read past columns at rearpewmirror.com and follow Rear Pew Mirror on Facebook and leave comments there telling us what you'd like to hear about here. Also, check out Rear Pew Mirror's home publication, Southern Jewish Life Magazine at sjlmag.com for more legitimate news and facts than you'll ever hear from me here. I'll talk to you again next time. Be good out there. <laughs>